There's a history of a rebellion in America. There's a history of self-reliance in America. Those are part of what made us great. That's part of what made us um, expand as a nation, which obviously has its, its ills as well. Um, but it's, it's sort of taking a wrong turn, right? It's like something that's evolutionarily good about Americans is now headed in the wrong direction. Wednesday. My name's Tom Scott. I'm with R.P. Eddy. R.P., um, I heard a lot of feedback from yesterday's show, COVID is back. Um, I want to go, go back on something we discussed yesterday, and I, I want to dig in again on more COVID stuff. Um, there's so much going on in the world right now that it's hard to like sort it all out, right? And if you go back to um, the Trump rally, because I, I did like a, I did a double take and I thought, was he really in a an arena with boatloads of people without masks on? I just thought like, what? Like, did I? Is that really what happened? Because there was so much going on. Like my own sort of priority list of, as I was as as I was observing the gathering. COVID wasn't that high on my list. It was more politics and other things, and then the story predominantly was about how his crowd didn't turn out, right? That was sort of what that grabbed all the headlines. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go back and look at some of the pictures and just see, is it really true that none of these people had on masks? It's really true. And I thought, it's just wildly irresponsible. I'm not trying to pick on the guy all the time, but man, I, I just think, you really packed a stadium with people with no masks on? Average age of a Trump voter is 60. Average. <clears throat> means half is above 60, half are above 60. Um, if you're over 65, this disease becomes like extremely lethal. So it's, it's even more foolhardy than it looks at first glance. It's crazy. It's crazy. This whole mask thing, we've just got to get over it. Leaders have got to lead. He's killing people. He's killing his supporters. People will die. Someone from that rally is going to contract the virus from that rally and is going to die from a virus they contracted at that rally because it was indoors in an air-conditioned space in an area with a high prevalence of endemic disease and they weren't wearing masks. That's an 80%, 90% likelihood. It's a horror. It's sad. I don't want it to happen, but it's going to happen. And um, yeah, I'm looking at... He could give a... Does he... I mean, you know, that probably didn't cross his mind. Yeah. I mean, just symbolically, you know, just as a way of saying, hey, guys, let's be safe. I'm looking at it right now and I see the crowd behind him. Not one person. I, I did the exact same thing. I could. I actually went back and looked it's like, is it is it true that my mask on? They don't have, look. It, it, so what are they? You know, they're not evil people. Uh, what are they thinking that we're different than what we're thinking? They're thinking. Again, shared consequence. What disease are you talking about? I don't know anyone who died. No famous person has died. Uh, you know, Arizona's actually headed to real trouble. They're, they're getting to maximum ICU capacity very quickly. You're talking about the Tucson rally? Is that where it was? That was, that was Tucson, Tucson, yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, Tulsa. Okay, two different rallies. Tulsa. So Oklahoma even makes my point a little more clearly. Like. There is not a lot of disease in Oklahoma. So people who live in Oklahoma 
have seen something around 80 or 100 days of economic slowdown, a country 108 days in economic slowdown, 103 days or something, and they don't understand why. And, you know, back in ancient era of ancient man, when there was thunder and lightning in the sky, people didn't understand why they ascribed meaning to it. It's the gods, it's Thor. Um, and, and so they see a dynamic happening and they're ascribing meaning to it. So that leads to conspiracy theories. Oh, it's the Democrats trying to hurt Trump's chance of winning. Okay. Um, it's an, it's an attempt to literally muzzle us, us being the folks, the mainstream media doesn't like. Okay. Um, any number of things, but they don't see it. They don't believe it. There's a history of a rebellion in America. There's a history of self-reliance in America. Those are part of what made us great. That's part of what made us um, expand as a nation, which obviously has its, its ills as well. Um, but it's, it's sort of taking a wrong turn, right? It's like something that's evolutionarily good about Americans is now headed in the wrong direction. It's like your uh, appendix, which you know evolutionarily is less critical than it used to be, at some point was relevant, isn't anymore, now just causes problems. So in this instance, the self-reliant, the rebellion is making people say masks are a bad thing. Donald Trump, it's not like he intimates it's a bad thing. It's not like he hints at a bad thing. It's not like just by not wearing one, he's signaling it's a bad thing. He literally says it's oppressive, it's liberal, it's a wussy thing to do. So people, and then he calls a rally inside an air-conditioned space with people not wearing masks. So Arizona, higher endemic disease, average Trump voter, 60 years old. Average rally participant, probably 65 years old. Don't, I don't know that number for sure. <clears throat> and people in Arizona, at least where there's a lot of endemic disease, are gonna get the disease from the rally. So if you think that's silly, go look at the Wisconsin voting. Um, you recall the Wisconsin election a month and a half ago. People contracted a disease from that um, poorly handled voting. Remember what I'm re referring to? Uh, and, yeah. and I don't know if anyone died, but, but uh, over 50 people, I think it's 30 to 50 people a few months ago, or, you know, a few weeks ago, clearly got the disease from that rally. So, you know, people are going to get the disease from the rally. Let me make one more point. Um, there's nothing in our brains that understands logarithmic growth. Nothing in our lives that grow logarithmically, except things that are invisible, like viruses. <coughs> and so we, we, we kind of know that. We rationally understand that these things grow, quote unquote, logarithmically, exponentially. What does that mean? Of course, it means it's 2 to 4 to 16 to 32 to 64. You know, you know what it means. It means one person with a disease spreads to three people, is, is basically what happens with this disease. One person gives to three and then that gives to nine, right? So it's a factor of three growth, R naught of three. So that in and of itself is trouble. The other problem is the base number you start from obviously dramatically matters. So if you start from 100 infections before you get your act together versus one versus 1,000, it's an extremely different outcome. Part of what happened in America, and there's a longer story about the heavy viral load that got to New York relatively quickly, the heavy viral load that got to Seattle relatively quickly, although it wasn't quick at all, it took, month, it took over a month of warning before it really got here, caused a crisis quickly. Crisis thinking is the stupid zone, right? When you're thinking in crisis about a novel challenge, like a disease, you know, you're a policymaker, you're Donald Trump, you're a real estate guy, you're a reality TV show, all of a sudden you have to think about a disease. I don't know if he ever took a biology class in, in college. I don't know what his 
background is to understand this or, or a, a, an advanced mathematics class, I'm not criticizing by any measure. Most policymakers don't understand these things. And there's, you add to it, so complexity mismatch. It's much more complex than we're used to. It's a crisis. It's politically charged. People are literally dying. And you have to all do it real time in front of a TV camera. It becomes much, much harder. Why do I mention all this? Because the 23 states in America that are now having growth of the virus are bringing this problem on themselves. And I don't just mean the disease growing logarithmically or exponentially. I mean creating a sense of crisis in which decision-making is harder. Final point is when you're in this disease crisis mode, obviously my point I'm making is it's too hard to shut down easily. You can't test and trace the one or the 10 or the 50 cases. All of a sudden it's a thousand cases and you're well beyond your ability to test and trace. You have to shut down. So you, what you end up doing is making your solution set to one extremely expensive, unattractive solution, shutdown. If you deal with it earlier, you have less expensive, less contentious solutions, right? Test and trace, isolate, mask wearing, hand washing, social distancing. Those things can work better, much better, when you have a lower amount of disease running around, a lower amount of vectors. Final point on final point, just to make it clear, just think of it as an invading army. If you have you know, five Russian soldiers with AK-47s landing in your town, the police department can probably get their hands on that, depending on the size of your town. If that becomes 25, it becomes an issue. Maybe the National Guard shows up. If it becomes 250, then all of a sudden you probably are in real trouble, right? And you have to go to different and more extreme solutions to deal with it. That's what's happening here. So these states that didn't take it seriously in the first place because they didn't have shared consequence, so it wasn't ridiculous for them not to, now are going to have to take it seriously in a much more difficult situation. So they're learning to ski on a triple back diamond, whereas they could have handled it on the bunny hill if they got on top of it faster. The president is making that worse by telling people they shouldn't wear masks, by literally mocking mask wearing. And then on top of that, he's making it worse by having rallies in places, indoors with older people who are going to catch the disease, are going to spread the disease, and some are going to die. So, you know, welcome to leadership in America today. So what do you do about it? Don't expect leadership from the White House. Expect it from yourself, from your company, from your family, from your mayor, from your governor. If it's not there, you better find it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, you know, basically the EU is saying no. This is this is the big deal. Such a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're saying Americans cannot. I think they're opening on July 1st and they're saying, no, America can't come here. Um, you understand? Like, not, so not only... Holy shit, you know, business people can't go fly over and look at their factories. Parents can't go over and see their kids. Kids can't come over. I mean, you know, the, the, the separation of humans from commerce and life and love, that's a real thing. The economic impact is not just bonkers on that inability to literally get to businesses, yeah. but the economic impact on the travel industry, the whole hotel industry and everything else is insane, right? But the shame to America, where the EU, a nation, Europe, that a, a, a continent we've rescued twice in the past century, saying you can't come here anymore. And, and by the way, they're not wrong. The shame in that, to me, I mean, holy Moses, like what more do you need to see about America 
completely abandoning its role as a global leader, which is what I talk about a lot, but now even as a responsible global citizen. Like, you're not invited to come to my meeting because you're so irresponsible in my meeting. You know, you show up and you spill coffee on everybody and you take your clothes off in the middle of a meeting. You can't even come here anymore, let alone lead the meeting. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, well, and I think the other thing that's happening, um, so we have this trip coming up and we're going to go uh, over 14 nights. We're going to have at least 11 conversations and it's a conversation on race. Um, we're going to do it down the Mississippi again. Um, now, you know, you may love what we're doing. You may like less what we're doing, depending on who you might be. Um, the goal is to build useful conversation and unite. That's what it's for. And that hopefully the conversations are, are courageous and that they are, you know, useful and shareable and all these other things. That's what we hope for. Now, I'm mentioning it because we're doing this in a moment where our president is literally trying to divide us. I'm being literal here, right? It's a literal decision to, you know, put masks in people's face, faces as a dividing point or to do some of the political things. And, you know, divisiveness is part of politics to a certain extent. But at this moment, one of the things that's happening in, in a moment where America needs, you know, like some kind of unified progress is that the division makes it all the harder. I, you know, I want to add there's an irony to what I just said, because I also think it's going to bring people to the table. I think there's a, an exasperation on a lot of people's parts where they're going to want to participate even more because of what's going on. And it relates back to your point, because I get frustrated. I get afraid. There's a lot of I mean, we have to be healthy on our trip. We have to be smart on our trip. I want to be productive on our trip. And, you know, look, we're going to make a small dent. And I get that. But it does make me want to do it more. The oppositional nature of what seems to be happening in the world does give me a little bit of energy to even do a better job, if that makes sense. But that's how I feel. It's like I'm, 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 in, I'm, in, a, I'm in a bit of a battle with my own senior you're, level of government. You're doing, no, okay, sure. Um, but you're, you're doing, you're practicing what you preach, right? Um, and, and I think the other thing for people, and you're not, you're not making money off it. I mean, like you're going out no, there, no. you're trying no. to combine, Tom, um, I have two stickers in the back of our Suburban and I was looking at them yesterday. I got my car washed after you know, 22 days of driving across the country with three little boys. You can imagine what that thing smelled like. And, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I, I got it washed and I was scrubbing it and I was reflecting on the two bumper stickers in the back of my car, both of which have been on there for over a year. Top one is neighborhood, the, the Nantucket Project neighborhood project. I love that. Where you're going out and you're bringing people together and having them drop their electronic devices and drop their ego devices and drop all the things that separate us and try to encourage conversations in what has sadly become this magical revelation that talking face to face is a beautiful thing and that humans, Americans, have more in common than separates us. And like, that's sticker number one. You want to guess what sticker number two is? Actually, I won't make it. Sticker number two is the black, purple, black bar of I support the police. 
Again, I've had this up there for a few years because I have worked with police departments for a number of years. I train with police departments once a year and generally was kind of a law and order police supporter, you know, obviously within constraints and trying to modify and improve police departments on a counterterrorism basis has been one of my things for a long time. And just to be clear, helping police departments fight terrorists has been what I've been working on for since, you know, one degree or the other since 95. And so I have that on there. And also I have it on there so when a policeman pulls me over, hopefully they feel some degree of alliance. And I'm looking at these two things, both of which happen to be purple and black, the colors I have. And I'm thinking, you know, are these contradictory? What's going on here? And it's, it's, a, it's a bit of the conversation you're having, right? So one of those has become a divisive symbol. One of those, policing, has become a divisive force. And there's so much more to talk about that. And I'm excited to talk about that with Chief Bratton. And one of those is your effort to heal that division. And, and, and you've been doing that, of course, pre, you know, for years and years you've been doing that. So you're, this is the time when we must do that. Um, and again, it's very easy to get on social media and Black Lives Matter or post whatever it is. Like, get out and do it, right? Go talk to people. So this trip across country for us has been such a revelation. Um, and I've mentioned a couple stories in the way of people, you know, everything, everything you shared on your trip previously, which I only saw, saw at a distance, is now kind of the lessons of it have come home to us too. So um, I, I can't commend you enough for what you're doing. It's not what you're doing isn't in contrast to the president. What you're doing is in furtherance of America and furtherance of humanity and increasing circles of empathy. One last point. Here's why I, I can look at polling data. I can talk to experts. We do that professionally. We build our own models about will the president win or lose. It's one of, you know, 15, I think at this point, 15 global dynamics that my firm tracks every day. And you can imagine the election of the U.S. president in every instance matters. In this instance, it matters dramatically. We obviously track Corona. We track North Korea. We track Saudi-Iranian tensions. We track Venezuela. We track all these things. And we track the election of the U.S. president using the same extraordinarily powerful frameworks, expensive tools, lots of experts, constant modeling on all these things to help keep our clients, government and, and business, ahead of the curve, ahead of the headlines. That's what we do professionally, one of the things we do. And I can go look at our models right now, and I can tell you that the world's best experts and the world's best models say Donald Trump today, what are we, four months out, um, has um, an 85% chance of losing the election. Now, please understand, four months is an eternity, particularly in today's dynamic. Um, and so I literally wouldn't bet a penny on that yet. But here's why I actually think Donald Trump will lose. It's not because of all that expensive modeling and the experts and the tools we're building and what I read. It's because of sort of what you're saying, Tom. Donald Trump is a chaos president, right? He is a protest president. Polling data shows, interviews show, a large number of the swing voters who got him into office using the quirks of the Electoral College, didn't vote for him because they agree with his policies or agree with him as a man. It was because, in the words of one of the great leaders of the RNC, a vote for Donald Trump was the biggest middle finger they could give to their country at that moment. 
the biggest protest they could give at that moment. Because at that point, they felt left behind and ignored. And not wrongly, by the way. This is when Hillary Clinton called them deplorables, et cetera, et cetera. They, they felt no one cared about them. The system was rigged against them. Pretty cogent argument, in my opinion, by the way. So how does he lead? He leads by dividing us, exactly as you said. He profits from division. He profits from, you shouldn't wear a mask. He profits from, you know, I mean, the litany of things. The, 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 the dog whistle race baiting that he's doing, etc. right? The law and order kind of pounding the drums, showing videos last two days of black people attacking white people, which is what he spent his time on Twitter doing. President of our country has done that. So that had worked for him because those voters bought into that. In this election, in this era, in America today, we are fatigued. This is why I think he's going to lose. We've had enough. We don't want division. We don't want chaos. We don't want crisis. Most Americans now want a healing. They want to get back to the sense of what's beautiful in this country. And that's just not what he embodies, not what he conveys, not what he's teaching us, not how he's leading us. So it's for those reasons I'm actually, and it's not the polling, it's not the experts. It's, I, I, and, the, and it's the trip that's allowing me to see this. I believe we're coming to a moment where America has just had enough of the division and the chaos of the disease, of the black lives, of the murder of George Floyd and the inherent division that came from that. Um, I, and, and him constantly throwing gasoline on the fires. So, so that was very long, I apologize, but I've been thinking about that for a few days. And, and um, so again, thank you for what you're doing. Congratulations on what you're doing. It's what we all ought to be doing. And I think because America is receptive to the Neighborhood Project and what you do, because that works here, is why I think that we as a country probably have had enough. Those swing voters in those critical states probably have had enough chaos. The Democratic bloc voters probably know they need to get out and vote. So I think that's why uh, I'm pretty confident this will be the last term for Donald Trump. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you, I'm sure you saw some of those numbers. Um, 50 to 36 in one of the polls I saw. 50 to Biden, 36 to Trump. That's a national number. Um, there's a whole variety of places where the numbers have moved in favor of Biden. And, and Biden is at numbers that currently that Hillary Clinton never reached. She never reached 50 percent. Um, the gap was never so wide. As RP said, there, there's plenty of time left. Um, you know, the thing I think a lot about is, um, you know, there's some kind of a galvanizing effect happening on the left, which is to say within the Democratic Party largely in opposition to Trump. But then I also just wonder, like, what is the state of the Republican Party? Like, I don't I, it, I don't even understand what it is. You know, I, 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 I can imagine like the Ben Sass sort of um, I'm going to describe as sort of a older school George Bush like H.W. Bush like uh, Republican set of values that Right or wrong, I, I would argue I would prefer that these kinds of people would speak out more. I think they're doing they're, they're making what they view as pragmatic choices by by remaining quiet. But I wonder what's left of a party for them when all is said and done. And what does that party even look like or stand for? It's just very, very difficult to know. And I feel like there. I mean, I read a I read a, a tweet today from Bill Crystal, which, by the way, I don't do Twitter, but somebody sent it to me um, and uh, it sounded like something, you know, 
Mika Brzezinski would have posted it at a time in the past, which is to say it read like a, a left-wing rejection of Donald Trump. Like, it was incredible. Bill Kristol, for those of you who don't know, is a conservative writer, thinker, pundit type of guy um, who, you know, historically wouldn't have said anything like that. It was just so interesting to see it. And I just kind of thought, like, what is the state of the Republican Party? Like, wh where does this all land? I mean, like so many other things in life right now, I mean, you're talking about 4.9... Uh, the, the global economy will shrink 4.9%. You know, 4.9%, sorry. To shrink 4.9% is radical. I mean, it's a radical world. I mean, to, to grow zero is radical, right? Like, no growth is radical. The number of radical things that are going on right now, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And, and to the point, you just made a point about Trump's recent tweets that I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about them, and I'm judging from afar. But what you described sounds, just sounds terrible. Terrible. No, it's, it's what, it, you know, you and I have kids around the same age. If our children tweeted what he tweeted, they'd probably get asked to, they get punished by their school. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, tweeting, like literally, right? Like we'd have a school conference, you know, little junior here, who's been tweeting videos of black people attacking white people, some of which are sourced to right uh, neo-Nazi, you know, sources. What's going on with Junior? Like, what's going on at home? Do you know, RP? Like, what's he seen? <laughs> like, we're really worried about his mental health. You know, um, all, a lot of his, his classmates are really upset. His, 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 his African-American classmates are just in tears. You know, that's like, that's what our president's doing. Um, the state of the GOP, you know, you can have, it seems like every time a new president takes over, he redefines his party, right? And, oh my gosh, his party, the party right now of, of President Clinton, isn't the same party as of Carter, and the president of, of Bush 43 isn't the same as his dad 41, and of Trump isn't the same of 43 or 41. Well. So there's constantly that conversation. It's real. The president sort of has a, that's what happens. Like he wins, he's the boss, you know, it defines in his image to some extent, at least during his term. This is dramatically, dramatically different because there's, there's maybe only two or three of dozens of Republican planks that this president actually supports. So if you were to go back, you know, if you were to go in a time machine and go back to any Republican before Donald Trump emerged as a candidate, let's say, and said, here's how he's actually going to govern. He's going to be isolationist. Some are part Republicans be like, yeah, it's kind of our plank, tiny, small plank. Um, he's going to be deregulatory, definitely a Republican plank. He's going to try to get conservative justices, definitely, conser definitely Republican plank. And he's going to try to reduce taxes. That's Republican plank. Uh, and he's going to try to repressure China on trade you know, probably some Republicans held it. Those things only are where he is coordinated with any historical Republican, what we mainstream Republican planks. And, and I mean it by like, go back and look at the planks in the Republican National Committee, Committee that they put together before every presidential election, whatever you want to define as the Republican uh, shared thesis, right? Every single thing else that he's done is not a Republican plank. And I can't list them all, but anti-expertiseism, um, anti-NATO, 
supporting Russia, holy shit, completely anti-Republican. Supporting China, human rights violations, completely anti-Republican, um, um, etc. So no, he, he doesn't look like anything historically. So what you end up tied to to morals. Well, so like, that that's the big, big point. So the big difference, you know, we talked about that New Yorker article about Greenwich. There was a New Yorker article, maybe was it two months yeah. ago, about how Greenwich, I think it was like Greenwich sold its soul and changed the Republican Party, something like that. Yeah. Greenwich, Connecticut, very wealthy suburb in, uh, of, of New York that you and I know well. And in that article, which I, I, I didn't love the article, it was kind of gossipy and, you know, it didn't appear to me to be New Yorker quality, if, if I can say so. But one thesis of the article has definitely stuck with me, which is that what used to be um, a party that was proud of the prevalence of morality, to some extent Judeo-Christian Abrahamic theology in its precepts, is now replaced those precepts of the golden rule, uh, all, that, all, all of that. So Bush 41, Reagan type, I actually care about other people. I actually am other focused. I care about service. I care about my nation. I care about my nation's role in the world. I care about how my nation takes care of the least amongst us, much like Jesus would preach, uh, much like the Abrahamic religions would preach. That's been replaced, says the New Yorker article, and I, I kind of buy it, with an emphasis on greed, gathering, and deregulation. Because you can't have both. You can't simultaneously say, I care about the least amongst us. I want to live a Christ. And I, I'm Christian, so I'll keep referring to Christianity. I can't live a Christ-centered life. I can't live by the golden rule. I'll do unto others as I wish they were doing to me. And also want deregulation so I can complete, can pollute the, the air that we share and, and pack the courts with conservatives so that I can force through the deregulation and lower taxes, dramatically lower taxes, so I can hoard my wealth. Now, Republicans have always wanted lower taxes, but those two things are, are not in concert. They're, they're in contrast. And, and I think that article got that point right. And it's, uh, this president absolutely exemplifies the latter, right? You know, he's, uh, you know, I feel like we're talking too much about him, but he, um, he's not other focused. He, you know, he stormed across Lafayette Square, gassed protesters who peacefully protesting um, some of whom were beaten by the federal police uh, to get to the steps of a church where um, nuns, uh, members of the church, were caring for injured people, had them cleared out physically with tear casts so he could hold a Bible in front of a church to try to show us he loves Jesus. Like, the irony of that is insane. Um, and to me that, you know, hold the Bible upside down and backwards, to me that's um, kind of what Trump Republicanism looks like so far as we're thinking about other people. Well, for me, um, I said this a about a week or so ago, but um, what followed was the mayor of Washington and the city council. Yeah. Yeah. Changed the name of the it became Black Lives Matter Plaza. They wrote Black Lives Matter in the road in between the, the street and the White House is Lafayette Square. Um, and the image from the sky showed the White House currently occupied by Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter. 
And for me, I posted that on Instagram. I've never done a political post. I don't know if you call that a political post. I guess you'd probably call it a political post. I know exactly where I stand on that image. I know exactly that I stand with the hopes of what Black Lives Matter currently represents versus the way the White House is acting and speaking. I just, I know exactly where I stand. And that, you know, anyone who starts to bring up different technicalities of either side of that equation, I know exactly where I stand on that equation, um, which brought me to do it. And you're right, we are talking a lot about Donald Trump. It's interesting because you, if you've been listening, you hear us say what we say about politics, but what we, and, and we talk about it in the, from a point of view of humanity. Like we want to be, we wanted to be informative to humanity about COVID, and I, I stand there still, but I think humanity has been played out so clearly in my head that it's hard to keep my mouth shut. And in some ways it does relate to my children, but it also just relates to this notion of my brothers and my sisters, symbolically speaking, at my fellow citizens. Like I want to, I want to be part of a healthy, happy, loving culture. And therefore, whether you think we should be back to business or not around COVID, just wear a mask. It's okay. Like no one's, it's okay. You're going to be better off with a mask and you can probably be in business and you can treat people with respect and you can treat people with love and lift them up and do those other things. We do not have to be in opposition to ourselves all the time. And if the president is going to so loudly proclaim his desire for divisiveness, I'm going to declare the other. Hallelujah. So God, God bless you, Tom. Um, just while we're quickly in the Republican thing, very quickly, if people are interested in, in what, I would call the best of the Republican Party um, what it's thinking now. Look up the Lincoln Project, Abraham yeah. Lincoln, the Lincoln Project. It's led, I think, led by Steve Schmidt, who was McCain's yep. top advisor. And um, uh, ironically, what, what, is, what is his name? George Conway. Conway. George Conway. What a story that is. That's going to have to be a movie, right? Yeah. George Conway's wife, of course, is one of the president's top advisors. George Conway, of course, is one of the president's top critics. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's, um, and um, the, the Lincoln Project has some awesome stuff up there. Thank you. Sure. And they also have, uh, they're putting ads out very, very quickly and very poignantly about you know, what they see as what Republicanism ought to be uh, and where the president is. It's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool movement. Pretty selfless, right? These guys aren't gonna. When Biden wins, they're not getting jobs in the Biden White House. Or, you know, very few people. Right. Will. They're they're doing. That's a patriotic move, right? Uh, okay, RP, we're 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 out of time. Um, the New York City Marathon has been canceled. The ML, the Major League Baseball season is going to open on July 23rd or ju July 24th. Um, there hasn't been a arrest yet or a charges in the Breonna Taylor shooting. Um, there's a lot of different things going on right now. Um, you know, Fauci expects to see a uh, surge of infections. You know, the irony of the fact that I think Fauci generally seems like a guy who cares about the right things, but his boss is less tied in. I just wanted to throw out some headlines before we go. And if you want to make a final comment, go for it. But thanks for the time. I think um, I'm really excited for tomorrow. We're having police commissioner, police chief Bratton, uh, old friend of mine, um, old colleague of mine, police chief of New York, Los Angeles, Boston, um, helped redesign London policing, 
Um, great human, great thinker, great public servant. We're going to get some time with him tomorrow, Tom. I hope people get to tune into that. I want to hear about defund the police. I want to understand how, you know, in some ways, just to be clear, policing is also one of the best ways that minorities achieve middle-class status in America, right? If you look at who gets to join, who joins the police force in many cities, who gets that income that can, that can become a middle-class income, it sure doesn't start as one. Um, a lot of them are minorities. So there are some aspects of policing we have to think about, and there's certainly things that have to be fixed. And so this is a man who, you know, I've always been surprised. He is not a gung-ho, stand-by-the-cop guy by any measure. He's a stand-by-the-lawful public servant, citizen-on-patrol police officer, of course. But he's also the first one to criticize the police when they step over the line. It's going to be fascinating to spend time with him tomorrow. Um, so I'm psyched for that. And uh, I, I liked our conversation today. I think we, we covered a lot of kind of important ground. And I'm proud to get to work with someone like you. And I'm really excited for the trip you're going on and the conversations you're going to bring together. I'm a little jealous I'm not going. I, I can't do it. But it's going to be awesome. So thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. And uh, I know when we started this, we didn't see this coming and it's been a journey. So thanks for all your commitment.